Church, this morning, uh, I need to do, I need to do two things. Uh, one is uh, very important. One is, I actually want to kind of give you, give all of us kind of a 30,000 foot perspective as we enter into this strategic planning session that we've been talking about. Uh, that part will really resonate with some of us, and it won't resonate with some of us. But it's critical and important, particularly if this is your church home. And then secondly, we'll launch into and continue our sermon series on Unfashionable. Um, we've been talking a lot since I've been back about discipleship. And I don't know if you're aware or not, but there is this talk and a lot of talk these days, growing conversation about discipleship and need to make disciples. A lot of people are writing books about it. And in some ways, it's great news because I think for me personally, in some ways, it's actually a reaction against what we've seen in the church for the last 15, 20 years, which was in some ways church that was kind of consumer-driven, we're here to meet your needs. Tailor God to be someone who exists for our purposes. Now, we never say that directly. But there was a lot of that. And churches got really big and movements and so on and so forth. And then, I think in the last 15, 20 years, there's this fatigue. There's this weariness. Dare I say, I think folks are realizing that maybe a Christianity that's centered on me and meeting my needs is not... Christianity at all. And so there's been this conversation about discipleship and making disciples. And, 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 and I don't think it's just a, a man-made thing. I think there's a genuine move of God's spirit. Now, in order for us to talk about disciples or discipleship and why it's important for us, I need to begin here. I'm going to put a bunch of slides, and these should be familiar to you. Colossians 1, verse 19. Where it says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth, in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And we say this a lot in our church. We say that God's mission is cosmic, it's big, it's huge. That the work of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection was to reconcile us to God. And that's important. But it was also to reconcile us to each other and reconcile us to God's mission to restore and renew everything in the world that's broken and fallen because of sin. So we, we embrace this holistic mission in our church. And you hear Christ community calls a lot because it gets to the essence of what it is that we're talking about, right? And we believe, next slide please, that this is what God is ultimately up to. And that when this mission of God is accomplished, it brings glory to God. It leads to the life that Christ really talked about and advances God's cause here on earth. Now, the question is this. If this is God's mission to restore all things, to connect us to him, to each other, and to his cause in the world, what is God's plan? What is God's plan? What is God's instrument? What's God's vessel to fulfilling this mission? And this is where if you are a part of a church and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we need to be blown away by this. Because the Bible says that his plan is this. His intent was that now through the church, Everybody say this with me, ready? Through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The primary instrument to God fulfilling his mission, this huge mission in the world is who? It's the church. It's us. It's you. And it's me. That's why essence of Christianity and approaching Christianity from the perspective of God exists to meet my needs. 
will fall flat and will not give you life. Because that's not what Christianity is. The essence of Christianity, God says, is I'm calling you, I'm collecting you, I'm gathering you because you're my instrument to this amazing work of God. That's why it's kind of true that a church has mission statements and mission, but it's more accurate to say this, that the mission of God has a church. The mission of God that's advancing, fulfilling, has a church. And the apostles, particularly Luke, makes this connection explicit in his introduction to the book of Acts. When he writes this in Acts 1-2, in my former book, Theophilus, and he's talking about the book of Luke because he wrote two volumes, Luke and Acts, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. This is an amazing statement what Luke says here because Luke is literally saying, look, I, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do, God, that God began to do to reconcile all things in the book of Luke. And then he says what he began to do, let me tell you how he is continuing it. And the book of Acts is essentially the movement and the growth of the church. He could not have been more explicit to say what Jesus began to do. The church is going to continue to do. Now here's, here, here's what's just kind of it's mind-boggling for me. So the question becomes, how did, how did Jesus go about doing this? How, how, how did Jesus go about fulfilling his mission to restore, reconcile all things? Here's what he didn't do. He didn't go, let's start a bunch of ministries. He didn't do. Let's create an awesome Sunday service, you know. Get a preacher up there, great worship. Let's get people and go do the phenomenal service. So a bunch of people would come on a Sunday and then go home and be no different Monday through Saturday. Jesus didn't do, uh, uh, let's, let's go ahead and not just launch ministries, but let's go ahead and launch a bunch of church programs. You know, because people love programs, children's programs, youth programs. He didn't do any of that. Do you know what he did? This, he, he, you, a very ordinary average Joe. And he said, follow me. And he discipled him. And then he went, you, very ordinary average person, you, follow me. And he discipled him one person at a time. No programs, no ministries, no wonderful Sunday service. One person at a time. And then, as if to reinforce that this is what he was really about, the last thing he says to them before he goes up to heaven is, and by the way, what I did, now you go do. Make disciples of all nations. So how do we get from, here's my plan to change the world, one person at a time, discipleship, to, you know, if we do an amazing Sunday service, a bunch of people will show up. How do we go from that to, you know, people want programs in churches because programs meet people's needs and meeting people's needs is what it's ultimately about. How do we get from that to, let's just launch a bunch of good ministries that do a bunch of good things. Every church has to answer these three questions. And if you're at our church, I encourage you to challenge us whether we're asking these three questions. And if you're by the visiting, if you're visiting today or checking church out, or you've been coming checking church out, if you're looking for a church, please don't look at the service, worship, sermon. Ask the church, 
What is your plan for these three things? Number one, how do you define what a disciple is? What is disciple and discipleship? Second, what's your plan for making disciples of Christ? Do you have a plan? And third, do you know if it's working? So first question, what is a disciple? And this is, this is where, you know, what we've been talking about for the last 11 years is so critical for me because it, it's very precious to me. It lies at the core of who we are as a church. And it also gets to the core, I think, of who God is. Because one time Jesus asked somebody, hey, hey, what's the essence of the Christian life? Boil it down for me. And Jesus said this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the essence of it right there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's a vertical component. But also love your neighbor as yourself, a horizontal component. And the way we have defined what this is by saying this, a disciple in a, is a devoted follower of Christ who is passionately in love with Jesus, who is engaging in authentic community and radically advances the cause of Jesus. It's essentially the great commandment and the commission put together. This is what we've been saying for 11 years. We're about making disciples. What's a disciple? We want you to love God with all your heart. What's a disciple? We want you to love each other. Deep, authentic community. What's the disciple? I want you to love the world in word and deed. So discipleship then is simple. It's the process by which we equip men and women to passionately love Jesus Christ. <laughs> Do you see why now we every Sunday have you say our mission statement? So you're like, oh, that's kind of nice. Cool. This is a reminder to us that we are about following Jesus every day of our lives. And this when individuals do this and they all come together. What happens? It's a city within a city. Totally different. Are you tracking? Does this make sense? My God, I've been back two weeks and I feel like I'm preaching like a, a, a visit. I'm at a visitor at a church because I look out and I'm like, secondly, what's our plan? What's our plan for making disciples? This is what this fall season is about. This is what we're doing for September, October, November, December. We are prayerfully saying, God, what's our plan? How do we go about this? And please listen carefully. (laughs) Does anybody remember that song? I grew up in church. This is totally random, you guys. We sang some silly songs when I grew up in church. When I was in Korean youth group, we sang this song called Jesus on the main line, calling what you up, Jesus on the... Anybody else sing that? That's what we sang. And so we did this whole motions, Jesus on the... Call anyway. What was I talking? Oh, this plan and disciples. What's our plan? What's our plan? And guys, here's where my heart is burdened. Here's where my heart is burdened. Here's my heart is burdened because let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Because so many of us, so many of us can be obsessed and addicted to doing things, to doing things for the king that we've completely neglected the vital reality of being with him. So many of us have become obsessed with the mission for the king that we've completely neglected the vital necessity of being with him. See, mission and the talk of mission is exciting. It's, it's energizing. Also sometimes give us meaning. But the work of being with the king, the work of being with the king, Eugene Peterson said, the work of obedience every day of our lives. And the 
hard work of knowing him and growing in him. See, to me, discipleship is important because Jesus said to his disciples, when you go out, I'm sending you out to a war zone, man. I'm sending you out to a war zone. There are going to be wolves who are going to want to devour you. That's his language, not me. And any church that sends you out to a war zone without preparing, equipping you, and also providing a hospital for when you come back to recuperate, is a church that shouldn't be sending their people out at all. We can't, I can't stand up here and challenge you to live your life Monday through Friday for Jesus in mission if we are not doing a job of making sure that you are prepared, you are equipped. And everything that we do at this church, everything, every gathering, every small group, every planning strategic meeting, everything that we do is to prepare and to equip you to be a disciple and for you to disciple others. Everything. So much so, that we're saying, Lord, are we just doing things for the sake of doing things? Because if we are, we're going to cut them out. We don't need to do them. Are we equipping and preparing you? What's our plan? And then the third question becomes, does our plan work? In other words, how do we know that there's fruit that we're actually making disciples of Christ? And I'm just going to rattle off these because notice the three C's again. We're asking these questions. Christ. We're asking these questions about you. Are their lives characterized by fruit of the Spirit? By the way, this right here is a great exercise because if you're sitting there, you're asking the question, I don't know, Peter. Am I a disciple? Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just a, a nominal Christian. Although I don't know if those two things should go together because either you're a Christian or you're not. Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I really a disciple? Here it is. Lives characterized by fruit of the Spirit. Do they take the Sabbath seriously? Is there evidence of a deep relationship with the Father? Is there growing love of the Scriptures? Is there daily regular communion with the Father? Can they submit? Do they see the world through the eyes of the kingdom and not prevailing culture? Is there growing love for the last, the least, and the marginalized? Now, here's the thing. A lot of times, churches will just stop there and go, discipleship is about your vertical component. Love God. Do your quiet time. Discipleship is holistic. There's community. Here's the questions we're asking. Are their lives characterized by interdependence with others in the body? Are they meeting regularly with others in the body to break bread and to bear one another's burdens, to share everything they have? Picture of Acts 2. Is their commitment to live in community? Are their lives characterized by growing intentional relationship with those of another race, ethnicity, culture, class, educational background? Discipleship cause. Can they hear the voice of God and respond with action with his authority and power? Can they read and teach scriptures as well? Is there regular intentional sharing of the gospel and word and deed? Can they live out their calling in their mission field, your jobs, your vocation? Can they disciple people who call? Can they disciple others? Are they using their spiritual gifts to build up the body? Are they becoming missionaries and church planters? These are questions that we need to ask. These are questions that we're looking at and going, am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I a follower of Christ? One last part of discipleship though is that discipleship inherently has within it multiplication. There is not enough for to go, yep, those questions, I think I'm answering that, I think I'm good. A disciple says what I'm experiencing with God and community and others. Now I need to find somebody else that I can teach, that I could equip. Inherent within discipleship is making other disciples. So my question to you is, What's your life look like? What's my life look like? Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I making disciples? And by the way, 
Some of us get really overwhelmed with disciples. Oh, man, you don't know. I spiritually, I don't know. One of my closest friends was the most helpful when it came to this definition of what a disciple is. He's part of Sexaholic Anonymous, S.A., And he said this. He said, you know, Peter, and by the way, he was a pastor for many, many years, and now he's doing other things that God is using for. He said this. He goes, goes, it's amazing how those groups teach you more about the gospel than anything else. And he said this. He said, you know what? The fundamental truth in that group is this. Because we all go, who am I to show? He says, we look at each other and go, how many days have you been sober? Three. If you've been sober three days, then you have something to teach someone who's been sober just one day. Uh, How many days have you been sober? A month. You've been sober a month, and you certainly have something you can show somebody who's been sober a week. And he said this, he goes, why, why does the church not do that? Why does the church put up this mythical, are you a disciple? It's like almost asking, like, are you like Jesus, you know? Like, well, none of us are. We're striving to be. He said, why can't the church realize that discipleship is not about, I got my act straight, I got my act right, I'm, I've got it all together so that, discipleship is, I've been sober a week, even sober one day, I got something to show you. Is that good news, church? That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. Discipleship. Make another disciple someone who's saying, I've been sober a month. Only a month, but you've been sober one day. Let me take you along. Let me take you along. Multiplication. And then let me just put this up here. And then, uh, oh man. I was going to spend like five minutes on this. Should have known better. Says, so, you know, God's, I think, long-term plan for a new community is this, you guys. And I'll just put this up there. Just as disciples are meant to multiply, I think the ultimate calling that God has on us, and we're submitting this to his lordship, is that just as one disciple is called to multiply the disciples as a body, God is calling us to plant and build ethnically diverse, gospel-centered, witnessing communities all over Chicago. And this is what God is calling us to do. And it is the inevitable and natural result of producing Disciples. I don't know. Is, it, is, it, is, that, is that something that gets you excited? <laughs> Be careful before you ask, Peter. So, this, this, this is what I feel like is what God is calling us to do. And before we talk about programs. and I, oh, oh, there's one other thing. We're not about discipleship. We're about the gospel. We're about the gospel. We're not about discipleship. Discipleship is an inevitable result of the gospel. Here's what I mean. You can't make disciples. You can't be a disciple unless the gospel has penetrated your heart and is at the core, is at the motivating engine and source of everything that you do. You cannot even begin to love others unless you are completely and unconditionally believe that God loves you. You cannot lay down your life for others unless you know and are convinced that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. You cannot go out and do mission without wanting to find acceptance and justification and significance by doing other things unless you already find justification, acceptance, significance in Jesus and Jesus alone. We are not ultimately about discipleship. We're about Jesus. We're about the gospel. We're about the glory of God. Amen? That's what we're about. So this is where we're going. This is where we're going, church. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm both excited and very nervous. Many of you know that I find my identity and my significance being a pastor. I share with that often. And I'm struggling enormously these days with this sense of, Peter, you're a failure. You failed. This is not what new community is about. 
It's not what they want to be about. And so I'm just asking for your prayer requests as I prayerfully lead myself and all of us through this process because I need to be reminded of the gospel and I need to be reminded of who Christ is and who God is in my life. Um, Otherwise, we all fall into the same trap. We're going to be about something else and not ultimately be about Jesus. Is that okay? Okay. Previously, an unfashionable. I'm so, seriously, I don't know if it's just too hot or what, man, but you guys are like, Lord, let it get cold soon. Um, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. We've been talking about Sermon on the Mount. And it's funny, Jesus came along and he talked about the kingdom a lot, a lot. This is the primary topic of what he talked about. Uh, Matter of fact, Jesus, somebody show me, never said, receive me as your Lord and Savior so you can go to heaven. Never said that, but he talked about the kingdom a lot. In this most important passage about what it means to be born again, John 3, this is what he said. He said, "Uh, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He says you need to be born again. It's not the end. Being born again is not the end. He says you need to be born again. Why? There's a greater reason. So that you could enter the kingdom. Jesus was constantly talking about the kingdom and the ramifications of the kingdom and what it means to be in the kingdom. And what we said while we're in this series, Matthew 5 to 7, is that when you enter the kingdom of God, there is a king. And because there's a king in this kingdom, everything about our life changes. Our priorities, our values, our loves, our passions, our desires, our goals. Everything within about us changes. We seek first the kingdom and his king and his righteousness before anything else. And when that happens, what we've seen is that it changes everything about our lives. Everything about our lives, and we've talked about already, how it changes our relationships to other people, how it changes our, our, our approach to sexuality, our approaches to marriage, our approach to singleness, our approach to dating. It changes everything about us. But the primary focus in the Sermon on the Mount is how it changes. When the kingdom comes into our lives, it changes our relationships to one another. What we're going to talk about for the next two, three weeks is another, I apologize, sermon within a sermon. We're never going to finish Sermon on the Mount. Because throughout the summer, while I was on break on Sabbath, it's like our culture, society just exploded, exploded. Basically exposing for most people who, if they didn't know and had their heads buried in the sand, the society and culture we live in. Let me give you a quote from a guy named Pastor Michael. I'm going to need your help in a little bit. David Brooks, New York, New York Times columnist, said this. Not long ago, people said that globalization and the revolution in communications technology would bring all, all together. But the opposite is true. People are taking advantage of freedom and technology to create new groups and cultural zones. People are moving into self-segregated communities with people like themselves and building invisible and sometimes visible barriers to keep strangers out. 40 million Americans move every year and they generally move in with people like themselves. I love what he says. Crunchy places like Boulder attract crunchy types and become crunchier. Granola places like Portland attract granola people, so on and so forth. And conservative places like suburban Georgia attract conservatives and become even more so. You guys. Then Jesus has the audacity to come and say, what? You are a city on a hill. 
He has the audacity to come and go. You are an alternate city. He has the audacity to go. You know what the city out there is like. You see it. And the question is, are we any different? Are we, not just individually, and we'll talk about that, are we as a church family, as a church body, are we collectively, corporately any different? I mean, fundamental to our mission because of what Jesus has done is that because of a crisis and what he has done, the gospel says that you and I, in a culture in which people are self-segregating into communities with people like themselves and building invisible barriers to keep others out, and others are people who are not like you, are we any different? In this church, it's, it's for me, both encouraging and challenging whenever a visitor comes and he says, you know, Peter, this is like the most diverse church I've ever seen. And I go, thank you. And then I don't know how to respond to that. Because for me, the question is, this looks great. This looks awesome. But the question is, are we any different? Are we any different? And can I get a little more specific? And you've heard these questions before. Are we any different gets to questions like this. Do you come to church with people who act think, uh, look, act, think just like you? Do you leave worship or church with people who act, look, act, think just like you? Uh, are you, sorry to pick on you from LA, but are you sitting right now with people who are just like you? Do you only interact with people who look just like you? Do words diverse, different, and difficult, because multi-ethnic relationships are difficult, describe your friendships? Are you meeting regularly and praying with people who are different from you? Do you seek out mentors of different race, ethnicity, and gender? Do you regularly practice spiritual forgiveness? Because if you are in genuine multi-ethnic relationships, hello, we're going to offend each other. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to misunderstand each other. We're going to have to do a lot of forgiving. Do you acknowledge that we live in a culture influenced by race and class? Do you speak up when others stereotype people of other race and class? And yes, I need to ask this at our church. Are you feeling pretty prideful and arrogant that you did really well on those questions? Can people out there see anything tangibly and visibly different about the way we do relationships? Can I just say something that's obvious? Can I just say something that's really obvious? And that's this. You being here and sitting in a multi-ethnic group doesn't even begin to get at the mission of being a city within a city. You being here on a regular basis and never engaging in deep, meaningful relationships with people of other race, ethnicity, and culture. It's not about pursuing racial reconciliation. Church, if we are racially and ethnically divided in here, how the heck do we begin to heal a racially and ethnically divided country? How do we begin to do that? See, this sermon for the next two, three weeks is really hard for me because every time I preach on this, people have left our church. People have left. Because they'll say stuff like this. They'll go, man, I came to church because it was about the gospel. It was about Jesus. I came to the church because, you know, I like the worship and the sermon, so on and so forth. Basically, what folks are saying is, I came to the church because there are aspects of it that really resonate with my culture, what I like. And all of a sudden, you're challenging me that it's not about me. Mm -hmm, I'm challenging you saying it's not about you. And let me be very clear. This is about the gospel. 
For the next two weeks, I'm going to be absolutely clear. This is about the gospel. Because when you see the work of Christ on the cross in Ephesians 2 and 3, the Bible says, Jesus Christ reconciled not just us to God, but to each other and to his mission in the world. And the fullness of the gospel comes through when people see not just us being reconciled to God, but us being reconciled to each other across race, ethnicity, and culture. The fullness and the power of the gospel comes through in a multi-ethnic church that is filled with diversity, but man, they are united as one. I love this quote. John Stott, the church lies at the center of God's eternal purpose. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident in history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. Do you know what the very name of our church means? The very name of our church, among other things, means that when people come here in this church, they don't just look and see a different group. They look and see people interacting and living together in a way that the world doesn't know. And they look at it and they go, how do they do that? Jesus. Jesus. That's our mission. <laughs> so when you go, I go to new community, you need to ask yourself, who am I sitting next to? You know what really breaks my heart? This is really diverse, and then we self-segregate after church. Can I get an amen? Not because you think that's good, but I'm saying you agree with. We self-segregate. We come together. We sit with our little groups among other people. After service, we self-segregate because the same group of us walk out and do the same thing with the same people at the same place on the same day. (laughs) Church, this is breaking my heart because fundamentally I believe it breaks God's heart. If there was ever a time in our country, in this country, where people needed to see a visible, tangible, life-giving, pulsating fullness of a gospel that just doesn't say, get your relationship with God because he died for your sins, but a fullness of the gospel that says all the brokenness, all the messed up aspects of our world with sin, racism, prejudice, oppression, injustice, and evil, a world in which people live with people just like themselves who rarely interact with others. In a world like that, is there a power that's greater than sinful humanity? Is there a power that can reconcile sinful humanity? To create a new world order, a new community that the world has never seen. If there was a time in which a vivid testimony of that gospel needed to be shown, it's now. It's now. It's now. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Tell you the truth, there are times when I go, Peter, go find a really nice, comfortable, suburban, Asian-American church. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. And some of you that have actually tried to live into the mission of this, you know how hard this is. But I stay in it because this is God's call on my life. And I believe God's call for our church for this time, in this place. (laughs) I almost feel like I need to apologize to the visitors like, dang. I know this was what this church was about. Why am I here? 
Actually, I need to apologize to the rest of you in the community. Do you know why? Pastor Michael reminded us a while ago. He said, Pastor Peter, when I first came, you said you were going to continue to talk about three things that the church in America don't want to touch. Issue of race, ethnicity, and culture. Issue of sex. And issue of money. And I need to apologize to you because your pastors have been a coward, honestly. A coward. There are times when I'm afraid to talk about this because I know for a fact that there are some of us really, really uncomfortable in our seats right now going, oh, when is this over? I want to get the heck out of here. And I just want to be absolutely clear in case you're wondering. I'm going to just say it again. Please forgive me if I sound like a broken record. Diversity is not our goal. Being an inclusive church is not our goal. Being a multi-ethnic, multicultural church isn't the end goal. Even pursuing racial reconciliation isn't the end goal. The end goal is Jesus. The end goal is that the gospel gets more clearly and compellingly communicated. The end goal is that the glory of God is magnified. The end goal is the name and fame of Jesus gets displayed for our country and the world to see. That's the end goal. All of this is a means to say to the world, this is who Jesus is, this is what he has done. So no, don't come up to me after church going, is that the end? It's not the end goal. The end goal is Jesus. The end goal is God. See, we have a barbecue today, right? And I prepare this little introduction, this <laughs> introduction. <laughs> and I'm not even halfway done to the introduction. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just give the three main headings, okay, that we're going to kind of, by the way, you guys know me. My favorite way of preaching is to take a small text and go word by word. So I feel really uncomfortable when I do these broad stroke, you know, overviews. It kind of feels, uh, feels a little, you know, I know the Korean word. I don't know what the English word is, but it kind of feels kind of mengmat. Mengmat is kind of like bland, you know. It's kind of like I want to be able to kind of dig in. But what I'm going to do is kind of give you an overview of where we're heading. Next week, we're going to spend a good chunk of time on Genesis 11, Act 2, Revelation 7 and 9. And then the week after, we're going to spend time on Ephesians 2. But so here are the overviews that we're going to cover. The church has a multi-ethnic, multicultural DNA. The church has a multi-ethnic, multicultural DNA. The passage is the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound uh, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because, listen to this, each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these speaking who are Galileans? That how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? This is the birth of the church. You don't know what the church is? Birth of the church at the very beginning. And God says, from the very beginning, I want to tell you what's going to be a vital part of it. If you read Acts 2 through the lens of, well, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you start speaking in tongues. Do you speak in tongues? You miss the whole point. The biblical narrative Acts 2 is this. God's going, I'm going to start this thing called the church. It's going to restore, renew everything and work along with me. And check this out. He goes, from the very beginning, it's going to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural entity. Do you know what's amazing? Here's what God could have done. We would expect it. God could have made all the various ethnic groups, cultural groups that are gathered, understand one language, the dominant language of the time. That would have made more sense. 
I'm going to supernaturally enable all of these people to understand one language. God doesn't. He goes, no, 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 no. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this mono-ethnic, mono-cultural group, and I'm going to supernaturally enable them to speak all these other languages so that everybody gathered could hear the language in their own tongue. I don't know about you, but as someone who speaks two languages, and English, some people would say, English is my second language. As someone who speaks two languages, when I hear someone praying in Korean, it touches my heart in a way that somebody praying in English doesn't. It's my native tongue. It speaks my language. Imagine these people gathered from all over the world. The first time that the gospel is being proclaimed. The first time that the resurrection of Christ and the meaning of this is proclaimed. The first time of the unveiling of the Messiah. And God says, not in one language, but in multiple languages. Hello, is that good news? That's amazing news. You know what God was saying? He's like, I'm not about imperialistically homogenizing the church into one culture. Oh, I thought that was going to be like, yes! <laughs> Do you know why this is important? Let me, let me. I, I got an email. I got an email. And the gist of the email is something else. But this is a part that she writes that I was just like, oh, there are people like that in our church. Peter, this is why who you are, new community is so important. She says, lots of wrestling, I'm sure. She's talking about wrestling with faith. She says, I'm trying so hard to believe in God, Peter. And it feels like a war inside of my heart and my mind. I pray lofty things one moment and then I doubt whether God is hearing my prayers. I witness to my sister one moment and the next I'm hearing and believing lies that I have bought into a Western dogma that doesn't honor my lineage. It's been scary because if a wedding is in my near future and I want to witness to all those who are there about the beauty of Christ's gospel, I have to believe that he's truly the only way, that he's very real, that I didn't just fight this long for a man-made philosophy, that Christ is quite literally wants to call all the nations, not just some nations, that his people will do that lovingly, not by manipulating or changing culture or continuing to bring the white man into countries with their own rich history and culture. Do you hear what she says? Do you know I love that? Do you know I love our church? Because there are people like this dear sister in our church who are saying, Peter, what's the church meant to be? This international, multi-ethnic, all for the, all for the nations thing. And my answer is, yes, yes, yes. When God creates a church, he doesn't go, it's going to be one cultural entity. And everybody is going to conform to it. God goes, no, no, no. I'm a God of many tongues. I'm a God of many cultures. I'm a God of many nations. I'm a God of many languages. Not just speaking through it, but incarnating in them. I am a God of the nations. Is that good news? So how do we go from that to the Western church going into countries and imperialistically enforcing one cultural homogenous way to worship God? Do you see why that's so destructive? It was never God's intention. And we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about that next week. Secondly, <laughs> the church, where am I? Where am I? Okay. The church, not just the multi-DNA, the church is a multi-ethnic, multicultural destiny. Destiny. Look, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude from every tribe, every people, every people in every language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the gathering and the regathering of humanity as God intended. This is a new, united as one, united as one, recreated, healed humanity. But do you notice something? Their ethnic and racial distinctions are maintained. 
Their ethnic and racial distinctions are maintained in heaven. God doesn't just go, you know, being in Christ means that our culture, ethnicity is just obliterated so that you're just, you know, a Christian. God goes, no, fundamentally your identity is in Christ. But who you are ethnically, racially matters so much, God says, for all of eternity, you're going to be you. Because I designed it that way. Do you know a church like ours, I regularly talk to people who say, Pastor Peter, it took me up until my 20s to realize that I shouldn't be ashamed of who I was. And you talk to me, you go, why were you ashamed? It's because I was taught all my life that basically my job was to assimilate into the larger dominant culture. So I tried my best to assimilate into larger dominant culture, read into the IE white culture. And I struggled all my life as a single young adult, struggling with this, who am I, who am I? God didn't make a mistake, did he? I don't know. God didn't do this. And the Bible says, God is a God of many nations, many cultures, many race and ethnicities. And God says, who you are is so valuable that in Christ, in Christ, your identity ethnically and racially remains. We're going to talk about a very controversial thing. You ready? Next week, a little bit. The concept of color blindness. It happened again. I was talking to a good white friend, pastor of mine, who said, you know, Peter, my parents raised me to be colorblind. So when I see you, I just see you as Peter. To which I smiled and I said, thanks. If I knew that pastor a little better, here's what I would have said. Dear friend, I appreciate the fact that you see me as a brother in Christ. But who I am as a Korean with my culture, my ethnicity, and everything is a vital part of who created me to be. It's a vital part of who created me to be. Can I just throw up a quote that's going to just rile some of you up and then we'll come back to it next week? It's written by a woman named Monica Williams, psychologist. And the title of it... <laughs> The title of this article in Psychology Today, because you're looking at it, up, is Colorblind Ideology is a Form of Racism. Hello. She says, white people who are unlikely to experience disadvantages due to race can effectively ignore racism in American life, justify the current social order, and feel more comfortable with their relatively privileged standing in society. Most minorities, however, who regularly encounter difficulties due to race experience colorblind ideology is quite different. Colorblindness creates a society that denies their negative racial experiences. It rejects their cultural heritage. And it invalidates their unique perspectives. Colorblindness is well-intentioned. But it misses a fundamental thing. And that is, it implies that there's something undesirable or shameful about different or non-white cultures and ethnicities. And I tell you right now, God from the very get-go goes, I not only created ethnicities and cultures, but I'm redeeming it for my glory, for all of eternity. <laughs> By the way, you know what I love about that picture? People are not just hearing the good news in heaven in their own language. They're speaking it in their own language as well. So we're going to hear in heaven, praise the Lord. If you're Korean, you're Spanish, gloria a Dios. And then that's it. I don't know anymore. All right, that's it. That's, that's about it. That's three. That's enough for you, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Anyway, okay. Third, third. We're almost done, guys. The church is a multi-ethnic, multicultural directive. Directive. And we're going to talk about this more next week and the week after. And that is that who we are together, who we are together, gives witness to the watching world that God is up to something. And God is doing a powerful work. Now, 
because of time, I need to end here with this challenge. So it was really hard, like I said, to be on sabbatical this summer because every time I turned on the television, there was an incident or whatever that just blared across the TV, whether it be the George, uh, George Zimmerman trial or whatever, just exposing the kind of racial divide in our country. And, and, and I had these thoughts going through my mind. First was this, I go, it's not enough for a church to celebrate diversity. Even our culture celebrates diversity for crying out loud. Do you know how many corporations have diversity training now? Everybody's talking about diversity. Won't you be sensitive to people of other cultures? But we're not called to just diversity. We're called to racial reconciliation. We're not called to just be content with diversity. Isn't this great? We're called to go beyond that and go, we need to bring, reconcile people together. Now, here's the thing. I'm tired of talking about it. Anybody else? I'm tired of talking about it. Honestly, this sermon series hard because I'm going, I don't want to preach another sermon. Because this adds to what everybody's doing. More workshops, more conferences, more speaking engagements, more sermons, more da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And yeah, they're good to vent and good to become aware. Like some of you guys will actually gain from this sermon because you're like, wow, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. But a lot of us, we're like tired of talking about it. And I think the reason is because of this. Talking about it will not bring us any closer to bridging this divide that exists in our country and in our church. Talking about it will not, will not do the, it's until we do the hard work, until we do the hard, Laura, can you stand up? Jeanette, can you stand up? Jeanette, can you stand up? I'm just going to use you guys as illustrations. This is our country. People over there, people over here. This is our church. People over there, people over here. It is until, come on, they bridge the, the okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was, I was, okay, so I, was, I was expecting something, but maybe actually that's an apt metaphor of our church. It's kind of like, you know, I know, I'm just kidding. Okay, you can go ahead and sit down, please. Thank you. It's not until we do that. And, and you know what? The, the, the thing that is scary for me, the thing that is scary for me is that there are numbers of you who are sitting here going, I'm a part of a multi-ethnic church. This is great. Look, I sit. I hear sermon. Heck, I have to listen to a Korean dude shouting in my face for an hour. I am being multi-ethnic, bro. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that. biggest fear is that there are many of you who are deluding yourselves into thinking that you are living out the mission of God by just being a part of this church. And you have yet, you have yet to reach across the aisle. You have yet to reach across the aisle to actually get to know someone who doesn't look, think, and act just like you. You've never done that. You've never done that. You've never done that in this church. It breaks my heart. See, the thing that we have to wrap our mind around is, do you actually believe that you, you need each other? Do you actually believe that? Because that's, that's what this is about. Do you actually believe that we need, I'm not just talking about kumbaya, we're one community. Do you actually believe that the way God created a multi-ethnic, multicultural universe was so that in God's infinite wisdom, somehow he was saying, there's an interdependence among you 
that is vital to you knowing who I am, you knowing who you are, and you knowing my purposes in the world. And until you are engaging in these relationships, you will not know me well, you will not know each other well, you will not know mission in the world. C.S. Lewis, Four Loves. You guys hear me talk about this all the time. Charles, Ronald, and himself. Charles dies. And C.S. Lewis at first excited because like, oh, I have only one friend now. I get to know him really, really well. And then he says what? No, no, no. Far from knowing Ronald really well, I realized that now that Charles is gone, I know Ronald even less. Why? Because there were certain jokes that Charles would tell that Ronald would <laughs> laugh at, that he will never get to hear him laugh because he's not here. And if that's true of human beings, that unless other people bring out other parts of others that you can't because you're not big enough, what about God? God says, there are parts of me that you will never even begin to know unless other people from other race and culture bring things out about me that you have never considered. That you have never considered. And God says, the way to get to know who I am intimately involves this knowledge that you and you and you are nothing alike, but you see something of God that I don't do. Yeah. reason why in Isaiah 6, the angels are crying out what? Holy, holy, holy to, check this out, each other. Why? They are seeing aspects of God's holiness that they're seeing that nobody else sees, even the angels. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Here's the question I'm going to leave you with. Can you identify? Can you identify ways in which you have been fundamentally? Daxon, can we see that slide, please? Can you identify ways in which you have been fundamentally changed as a direct result of your interactions with people of different ethnicity and cultures? Can you identify? This is what goes beyond diversity to reconciliation. Can you sit here and honestly say, I can identify a specific way in which I've been fundamentally changed as a direct result of my interactions with someone of another culture, ethnicity? What say you? Let's pray together. CC, I'm going to give you a heads up. We're going to just pray for a little bit and have you kind of pray over us. I need you. You need me just by yourself. And then we're going to come together at the end and sing the Revelation song together. Church, we just kind of close your eyes. We won't pray long. Just close your eyes. And I, I need you to just listen. And if you can multitask, as you're praying and asking that question, am I... 
genuinely living out my life as a follower of Jesus? Am I, am I living my life out in passionate pursuit of Christ in such a way that there are these vital relationships that have fundamentally changed who I am because of who they are? Or am I going about my daily life in my safe, comfortable, homogenous existence? Are you radically pursuing the mission of God? Or are you, let me say it again, sitting comfortable in your safe, homogenous existence? So here is our prayer as Carlton just kind of sings this over us. It's a simple chord, simple phrase. And if you feel led that this is your prayer, that this is your prayer, then you sing along with him. If you're not ready to pray it, just be quiet and just let him sing over you. God is doing an amazing thing in this world. Our culture is desperate to see it. But how can we tell them about some truth that we are willing and unwilling to demonstrate in our lives? Before we can tell them to believe the gospel, we must demonstrate in our life together that we believe it, that it is vital to us, that it is important to us, that it is real to us. Live your life in community interdependently of one another for that is the Christian life in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said Amen and Amen love to see you next week take care church